I shudder to wonder what some of those are going to look like each week. Um, there will be other ones, and unfortunately, I got drug into them. So, hey, uh, my name's Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, we're starting a brand new series called Be Real. It's based on the book in the New Testament, right towards the end, a little book called James. It's written... Um, by a guy who knew Jesus pretty well, actually. Imagine. Um, imagine you grew up with somebody, and in growing up with them, you saw them day in and day out. You saw their lives. You saw what happened in their lives. And then when, when you guys were, like, grown, he was maybe about 30. You were, well, maybe in your 20s. All of a sudden, he starts saying, hey, by the way, I'm the Messiah. How are you going to react to that? I got a brother. If he started saying that, I'd be like, come here, come here, I'll, I'll tell some stories. You can just imagine if you grew up and your, your brother started saying that, like, hey, yeah, I'm Jesus. Yeah, you know, the one, we, we, we grew up together, but um, you need to know that, that I'm actually the son of God. That would be hard to believe. In fact, James and his other brothers you know, one of them named, named Jude, they grabbed Jesus at one point. And they tried to stop him and shut him up and tell him, what in the world do you think you're doing? Because they didn't believe that Jesus was really who he said he was. At least they didn't until after the resurrection. See, when Jesus was taken to the cross, he died and then he was buried and then Raised again on the third day, something changed for this guy named James. And James began to understand that Jesus really was who he said he was. And he became a pastor in the city of Jerusalem. He started helping other people come to know Jesus. And eventually, he wrote this little book that today we call the book of James. And over the next five weeks, we're going to take a look at what James has to say, and he focuses on things that are real, things that are real, things that, things that you can test and check and see. Is it actually what it says it is? Now, here's the thing. We have a culture that is fascinated with things that are real. I wonder if any of you know what this, this, this next thing that I'm about to talk about. On a, in a store that has 1.96 million items, there's one item that has started rising to the top. Now, I, I don't know this for myself. This is not a, a big thing for me, but I do have a, a teenage boy. It's not a thing for him yet. Don't get any ideas if he's in here. I don't know. But there is this thing that has been downloaded 73,000, no, thousand, 73 million times just in the span of about the last six months off the Apple App Store. Again, 1.96 million apps in the Apple App Store. A new app called Be Real. Anybody ever heard of it? Oh, come on. Some of you have it, be honest. Nobody? 
Okay, thank you. A few of you. I appreciate your honesty. <laughs> so what Be Real is, it's very popular amongst teens, right? Lots of, lots of kids and, well, if you don't know, talk to your kids or grandkids, okay? It's this app where at two times throughout the day, tell me if I get this wrong, two time, random times throughout the day, you get a text that says, hey, you have, what is it, one minute? Two minutes. You have two minutes to take a picture. You hold your phone up. You're not supposed to be able to change anything. You can't change your setting. That's why it's a short amount of time. You hold your phone up, and it takes a picture from both cameras, one facing you and one out from you. Interesting, huh? Let me show you a recent example. This is not my example. This is my buddy. Yeah, here you go. This is my buddy, Tim. Okay, Tim's one of our pastors at the Conklin campus, and Tim decided that it would be a really fun thing one day to download the Be Real app, and he's like, he, he didn't tell me, he just, I'm sitting at my desk, I'm being a responsible human being, working, and Tim says, hey Aaron, look over here, and I turn and I look, and I realize he's taking a picture, and this is what we get. If you want to know what I really look like in the day, that's it. Usually I'm like, for real, you know? This is exactly what happened. Now, why in the world do people do this? Why is this so popular? Why is it, like, what, what's the big deal with this app? Why has it been downloaded 73 million times just in a matter of months? Well, honestly, I think it tells us something about what people crave and what they look for. Here's, here's what I think it tells us. It tells us that people crave authenticity. They want to know that something is real. They want to be able to touch it and feel it, check it out and pull it apart and see, is this really what it, what it says it is or is it fake? I mean, think about it. We live in a world that's driven by social media where people have like all kinds of lights and makeup and all kinds of, I mean, and that's just the guys. And, you know, the gals, you know, whatever else, you know, they do. You know, I'm, like everything can be kind of made up. And, and really be fake. People crave something that is real and tangible and authentic. And I think there's a reason that we crave that. The reason that we crave it is we were made for something better than just an image or a, a picture. We want something real. But how do you know if it's real? Because here's the interesting thing about that app. They give you two minutes to take a picture. Do you know that you can retake the picture up to five times? That's not real. You know, you look at the picture. If you take the picture and you go, oh, I don't like that. Oh, my hair's terrible. Oh, hold on. Let me, you know. That's not real. You can take, retake the picture on that app. Am I right? Up to five times? Something like that? Yeah. I, 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 I think that's what it is. And then, do you know what? But here's the interesting part. When you do that, it posts on your picture how many times you retook it. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. There's a little bit of shame involved, right? Seriously, you had to retake that picture three times? If you would have seen my hair that day, you would have understood, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. Here's what else I know. If you want to know if something or I would even say this, if you want to know if something or someone is real, there's a way to know. This is actually what I think a lot of James is all about. 
It's all about how do we know if your faith and your life and, and your, your confession of faith in Jesus Christ, how do we know if that is real? Well, here's the interesting thing. James opens his entire letter written to a, a group of Christians. He opens his entire letter talking to them about how you can know whether or not your faith is real. And he says this, you want to know how your faith is real? Test it. Test it. You want to know that someone or something is real? Test it. Try it. Check it out. Is it real? Does it withstand the pressure, the heat? Does it, is it able to bear up underneath what it's going through? If it is, then you'll know whether or not it is real. And so here's what I'm going to attempt to do today. Probably I'm going to attempt, attempt to do something that is the most un-Valentine's Day weekend thing to ever do. So I apologize. And men, if you just realize it's Valentine's Day weekend, you're welcome. Um, you know, you can pay me later. But here's the deal. I want to talk with you about something today that is definitely not a Valentine's Day weekend sermon. I want to talk with you about trials. I want to talk with you about why are they there? And, and what do they do? Now, here's the thing. Some of you walked in here today going through a trial. Some of you walked in here today with medical problems that, that the doctors cannot explain. Some of you walked in here today with a heavy heart because of a relationship that is broken. Some of you walked in here today, you're walking through a, a trial with your children, with someone in your family. I get it. And if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, this message should, and, and James's message should speak hope all over you, okay? But if you're here and you, you, you'd say, well, I, I don't know about this whole Jesus thing, um, you know, it, it's kind of interesting, not necessarily against it, but not really sure. Here's, here's what I want to address really quickly. One of the most common reasons that people really don't want anything to do with, with Jesus or Christianity is the problem of suffering. It's the problem of pain. It's like, how do we answer that? If God is God, if God is real, if God is good, like you keep saying God's good, if God is really good, then why is there so much trouble and why is there so much pain? And I just want to acknowledge you first and foremost. I just want to say you have a legitimate question and a legitimate concern. And I'm glad that you're asking that. And I hope that by the end of today, you will see that God is actually up to something, and it's actually something good when he allows difficulty or pain. So if you don't catch anything else, let me show you what I think the main idea of these first kind of eight verses of James chapter one are all about. It's this, trials will come, but count it all joy because God is good. Now, I'm going to tell you, I wrote that line. I look at that line and I go, yeah, great, because I really count it all joy, usually when there's pain. In case you were wondering, I am not that good. I whine and complain. I, I, I end up, you know, when I'm walking through difficulty, you would think I had the man flu, okay? <laughs> I, I, I'm telling you. So, so I'm, not, I'm not telling you something that, frankly, that, that 
um, I don't realize that I, I have to work on. No, I, I do. But when I anchor myself in the text that we're going to look at today, I begin to see that I actually can count it joy. Let me walk you through the first two verses. Look at what it says. It says this. Now, James chapter, actually, I'm going to skip over James chapter 1 and verse 1. It's just James introducing himself. How does James introduce himself? Not as the half-brother of Jesus, but he says, I am a servant of Jesus Christ. What humility. Not the half-brother of Jesus. I am a servant of Jesus Christ. And then he says this, count or consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials, and, and notice this last part here, of many kinds. Now, I'll get to that here in a minute. But then in verse 3, he says this, because, why can we do this? Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. So, how in the world do we consider it joy? Is James crazy? Is he, is he off his rocker? Does he need to go see somebody? How do we get to the place where we actually count it joy? That's what I want to answer for you today. In fact, I think in the text, it gives us three reasons why we can say, yep, it is, it is something good. God is up to something good, so I can choose to count it all joy. Reason number one is this, God is using your trials to grow your faith. Now, I'm going to be honest with you, I don't like it. I've started going to the gym with a friend. I know you can tell. <laughs> but uh, I, I've started going to the gym with a friend. And we, we do some cardio, and, you know, first thing, I like that. Cardio is my thing. I'm a runner. I like to run. The thing that's not my thing is lifting weights. I know it's hard to believe. <laughs> but when you start lifting weights, something happens. There's resistance and there's pain and it hurts. Do you know why? Because your muscles are actually tearing so they can grow and expand. That's the actual process of building muscle. You break them, you tear them, you let them heal and grow and expand. That's what happens. Why would we think that our faith would be any different? See, the things that you're walking through right now, the things that you will walk through, the things that you have walked through, the things that maybe made you bitter in the past or maybe you are still bitter, I'm telling you, God is up to something good. He is working for your good. He's working to grow your faith. That's the thing. You say, well, how in the world could God use, you know, is, is this the kind of trial that God uses like my marriage is, is falling apart? Well, does it fall under various? Yeah. And could there be some things that need to get worked on right now? Yeah. You say, well, I've been sick for the last six months. How is God using that? I'm telling you, it still falls under various trials. God is asking you to do something uncomfortable. God asked my wife and I to move and do something uncomfortable a year ago and to relocate from, you know, 1,300 miles from Kansas City to here. What is that? I don't know if it's a trial, but I'll tell you, I know he's expanding our faith and changing us. What is happening in your life? 
Is it a trial? I don't know. Does it come under various? Yeah, probably. Here's what God is doing. He is working to grow your faith. Look at Look at this next verse, verse 4. It says this, Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. In other words, God's up to something, and if in the middle of the trial we stop and we say, Nope, that's it, I'm done, I'm throwing it all away, you're going to miss out. I'm not telling you you can't have questions in the process. In fact, here in a little bit, you're going to see James says, hey, you might have doubts. You might have questions. You may go, what are you up to? That's fine. God, God's not going to wag his finger at you and say, how dare you have questions? That's, that's not what he does at all. He says, hey, I want your questions. Bring them to me. Come on. You, you, you need help? Come to me. I'm right here. Your questions don't freak God out. Your doubts don't freak out. God out. God is up to something. Let him do the work. Now, this idea of counting it all joy, I'll tell you, years ago, I've, I've, I've experienced three times something that has changed my perspective on this. The first time I encountered it was a little over 14 years ago. It was on June 27th. Uh, of the year 2008. That day, my wife and I went into the hospital. My wife was nine months pregnant. I love my wife. She is amazing. Can I just tell you something? Something changes when a woman goes to give birth. <laughs> I'm in hot water here, so I apologize. Honey, she's up front. But I, there's the pain does something to you, right? Like my wife is so sweet and loving and it's awesome. And then that pain comes and the contractions come. What are you doing? Get over here. She didn't do that. It's fine. But you know what I'm talking about, right? No woman in her right mind, no man certainly would ever willfully enter into that spot and go, bring me that pain. I want that pain. But you know what? When it's all said and done and the child is there and you're holding the child in your arm, do you know what's so amazing? God, God made the human body so incredibly awesome that while a, a mother begins to hold that baby and then begins to nurse that baby, your body releases an endorphin that makes you forget about the pain. Yeah. I mean, come on. I, I have no words to say on this. I'm already on thin ice, okay? That's the process of trials. None of us would ask for it, but we certainly want the outcome. God is teaching and molding you. God is shaping you. God is chiseling you. God is, and I get it. I understand that what you're going through is hard. I understand that maybe nobody else has been through this, but God is at work. I got to show you a quote from a guy that I love, A.W. Tozer, said this. Just, it's a long quote, so just, let's just follow along and see, see what it says. He says this. He says, the fallow field is smug. The fallow field is a field just left. It's untouched. I grew up in a, on a farm, and so I, just, I love this imagery, okay? The fallow field is smug, contented, protected from the shock of the plow and the agitation of the harrow. But it's paying a terrible price for its tranquility. Never does it see the miracle of growth. You don't turn the ground, it's not going to be able to grow the way it should. 
Never does it feel the motions of mounting life, nor see the wonders of bursting seed, nor the beauty of ripening grain. Fruit it can never know because it is afraid of the plow and the harrow. Do you, do you see where, what I'm saying here? And then he goes on, he says this, in direct opposition to this, the cultivated field has yielded itself to the adventure of living. The protected fence is opened to admit the plow, and the plow has come as plows always come, practical, cruel, businesslike, and in a hurry. Peace has been shattered by the shouting farmer and the rattle of his machinery. The field has felt the travail of change. It has been upset, turned over, bruised, and broken, but it re its rewards come hard upon its labor. The seed shoots up into the daylight, its miracle of life, curious, exploring the new world above it. All over the field, the hand of God is at work in the age-old and ever-renewed service of creation. And I end with this. I love this line. New things are born to grow, mature, and consummate the grand prophecy latent in the seed when it entered the ground. Nature's wonders follow the plow. And if our goal is ever to avoid the plow and never let God tear us up, break us down, and let new growth come, we pay the price. See, God is up to something. So what will you miss out on if you don't allow the plow? You will miss out on growth. You will miss out on change. You will miss out on going deeper in your relationship with Christ. So let me round back to what James started with. He said, count it all joy. How do I do that? How do I count it joy? Well, here's what you've got to do. You need to realize that God is doing something good, and you need to value what he is doing. And here's the reality. I want you to catch this. My values shape my evaluation. If I value God changing me, then I can look at God taking me through a trial and say, yep, thank you, God. I see the outcome. I don't have it yet. It's already not yet. It's already there. It's not here yet. I'm not experiencing it, but God, you are good. My values shape my evaluation. Number two, how, how can I count it all joy? The second thing that James tells us, I think, that shows up is this. Trials help me be consciously aware of my need for Jesus. Here's what I know about you. Some of you, I don't even know your name. You don't even know mine. I've said it a couple times. It's Aaron, okay? You done messed up, A.A. Ron. Yep, that's me. But I do know something about you. I know that more likely than not, when things are going well in your life, you tend to look at it and go, yep, I'm doing pretty good. I got this under control. And then when things are going bad in your life or poorly in your life, you go, God, why would you? Come on, can we just be honest with each other for a minute? Come on. God, why are you doing this? Why are you allowing this? Why did you take that away? Come on, God, where are you? I thought you said you were never going to leave me. I thought you said you cared. God, where are you? But when things are going good, man, whew, I got this life. Woo, pretty good. I, I know that about you because that's me too. That's how we tend to do life. We tend to do life 
really without thinking about God until something tough comes. And then all of a sudden, I need you. Where you been? You abandoned me. Now he didn't abandon you. But he has a purpose in the trial. And the purpose in the trial is that it shows you you need him. Now look. Look at what the text says. Okay? The text says in verse 5, If any of you lacks wisdom, where should you go? Should you try to figure it out yourself? Is that what you do? I got this. I'm wise. I'm cool. All right. I can figure this out. I, you know, I got to be honest. That's a little bit of me a lot of times. When you're in the middle of a trial and you're going, I don't know how to get out of this. I don't know what to do. I don't know how I'm going to pay the bill. I don't know how to fix this relationship. I don't know how to change my life here. What do you do? When you lack wisdom, when you don't know what to do, you should ask God. And here's how he responds. Notice how he responds. He will give generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. Now, most of us tend to think that when we ask God for help, he goes, it's about time. That's not what the text says. He says he gives to all. He doesn't find fault. He's not pointing fingers. He's not name calling. That is not God. You ask, God will give. Think about it. Some of you are fathers here today. If your father asks you, if, if your son, as a father, if your son asks you or your daughter asks you for food, how many of you would give them a rock and say, go enjoy? Why do we think God does that? God is certainly more godly as a father than I am. And he says when we ask, he gives generously. Your difficulty, your trial is a gift from God designed to teach you something about God and to make you more reliant on God. Maybe one of the reasons that you keep having the same trial over and over and over and over and over again is that you keep trying to fix it yourself. And it's time to break down and say, God, I need you. I know those are hard words, but they're designed to be words that would help you because I don't want you to have to keep going through the same thing. What's it going to take for you to say, God, I need you? God, I need you. I need wisdom. There's a story, and I'm gonna, I was going to share it with you, but I don't have time today, but there's a story in Mark chapter 9. And I love this story. I'll, I'll summarize it really, really quickly. A man shows up to Jesus and says, hey, would you heal my son? He says, what's going on? Jesus, Jesus says, what's going on? His son has been convulsing and been thrown, into the, thrown himself into the flame. He's been demonized. You know, these demons have been doing this to him his entire life. And, and he says to Jesus, he says this, if you can, please heal him. And Jesus responds by saying, if I can. And then he says this, if you believe, all things are possible. And you know how the man responds? He responds by saying this, I believe, but help my unbelief. Like there's two things that can simultaneously be going on. Yes, God, I believe you. I know you're there. I want your help, but please help me. Grow me, change me, help my unbelief. I think that needs to be us. And in the midst of our trial, when we don't know what to do, your trial is designed to take you back to God and you can go back to God and you can say, I'm right here. I, God, I need you, but please, I, I believe you, I trust you, but please help my unbelief. That's what we need. 
to do. See, here's what I know about you and me. I'll just speak from my perspective. My difficulties, my trials, here's the thing. My difficulties are the pathway to my development, to me growing. It's designed to take me back to God. How about you? See, your trial is not an accident, and it's certainly not a sign that God doesn't care. It's actually a sign that he does care. That's why James says, if anyone lacks, go back to God, ask him for wisdom. He gives it generously, and he does it without finding fault. He doesn't point a finger. Number three, why can we count it joy in the midst of a trial? Here's why. This is going to sound a little weird, but let me explain. You're going to have to fight the battle with doubt, but you don't have to do it alone. You can count your trial joy because God isn't going to leave you alone, and he's going to teach you how to depend on him more and more and how to fight your doubts. And here's the thing. I realize that there could be questions and doubts about God. You may not even be sure there is a God here today, and I get that, but but I'm going to tell you something. If If Jesus could convince his half-brother that he is the Messiah, that tells me something. If he could convince the one that he grew up with that because of the resurrection, he is the Messiah, that, that tells me something. And so in the middle of your doubts, what do you do? Well, look at what the text says, verse 6. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt. Because the one who doubts is like a wave of a sea blown and tossed by the wind. Verse 7, that person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all that they do. What, what, What does this mean? Man, this sounds harsh. Jesus has just said, come to me and ask. Oh, but you better not doubt. It kind of sounds like that, doesn't it? Kind of sounds like, hey, ask, but don't doubt. Really what he's saying is, listen, in the midst, there's two different ideas here. In the midst of you having questions or concerns, we cannot be double-minded. We cannot think that God will not show up when you ask. That's all he's saying. God will show up. You may have doubts. You may have questions. You can fight that doubt knowing that He is with you. And here's the reality. We've talked about authenticity in the beginning. We talked about how do I know if something's real? Well, here's the reality. My response to difficulty, my responses reveal the quality of my faith. They tell me something about what's going on in my faith. So where you have doubt, don't worry. It's okay. God's not freaked out. But lean into that doubt and say, okay, God, I'm going to trust you. Please show yourself. I wish I could tell you the number of times that my wife and I um, have, have walked through something that we've kind of maybe been a little thin financially. Anybody ever experienced that? You know, those moments of being a little thin, not quite sure how it was going to go. I, I won't act like I've experienced being what I would call like destitute or poor, but I have certainly experienced times where I was like, okay, God... I don't know how we're going to make it through this. And in those moments, my wife and I have learned something amazing. We've learned that when we've gone to God and we've asked, he shows up. 
just two, three weeks ago in our small group, somebody, one of the, one of the families in our small group, we have a guy who's he's really been struggling, looking for a job for a long time, and for whatever reason, the job's just, they, it hasn't opened up, even though he's very qualified and great worker and all of those things, and for some reason, God's doing something, and we prayed as a small group, and we asked God, please give him a job, and do you, do you know what the interesting thing was? You know, he doesn't have a job yet, but God brought in some crazy income that they didn't expect. God takes care. He does. And even in the midst of your doubts, you can trust him. I love what Corey Tenboom said. She said this, when a train goes through a tunnel and it gets dark, you don't throw away the ticket and jump off. You sit still and you trust the conductor. And the reality is, that our trial is designed to teach us more and more how to trust God. I know that there's a problem of pain in the world and that there's a problem of struggles in the world. I know God is not done. And here's the thing, God isn't separate from our pain either. Let me show you one last thing before we close. Hebrews, in the book of Hebrews, in chapter 2, it says this. But we do see Jesus, okay, so we're talking about Jesus here, who was made lower than the angels for a little while. That's talking about him becoming a human being like you and me, okay? He took on, took on flesh, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. In other words, what he did on that cross was designed with you in mind, your sin, your pain. Your struggle in mind. Then he goes on in verse 10. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom uh, everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. The pioneer of our salvation is Jesus. He suffered. But you know what? He suffered and he didn't complain. He suffered and he didn't try to escape it. He suffered and he didn't resist. But instead of complaining, he decided to commit himself to God. Instead of escaping, he decided to embrace God. Instead of resisting, he decided to rest. I just want to ask you, aren't you ready to rest? Aren't you ready to rest? Because if you will, I think what he'll build in you is a real faith, an authentic faith, one that no matter what comes, when the storms come, the rains fall, the winds blow, your house will not fall because it's built on God. That's what I long for you. Would you pray with me? <coughs> Father God, thank you for your word and the truth contained in it. Thank you, Lord, that we can trust you. And thank you that you are using trials for our good. Please help us to trust you. Please help us to trust you even when it's hard. God, for those in the room this morning that I know are walking through painful things, the loss of a loved one, 
the illness of a child, and so much more. I pray, God, that you'd help us to look at the end result. Just as a mother in the midst of childbirth has to look at the end result, when that child is here, the joy that it brings, God, it's my prayer that you would help us to do the same, knowing that you are doing a work in us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.